and my sinus infections drain on my vocal cords. Of all the places that I could have trouble, a man that makes his living by talking on vocal cords. My wife was uh, motioning to me there a minute ago if I wanted a cough drop, and I got tickled. The reason I did is I had a deacon one time who every Sunday would give me a peppermint. And Willard would say, Preacher, when that peppermint is done, you're finished. Sit down. I said, all right, brother, I got you. So one Sunday he handed me the peppermint. He said, you know the story. I said, I do. He said, now, don't do what one preacher did here one, one time. He got in his pocket to get the peppermint and got a button, and we didn't get out of here at 2 o'clock. So, you know, I'm not going to take the cough drop because could get a button. We don't know. We have seen in, in Romans chapter 5 numerous similarities between Adam and Christ. Both are appointed by God. Uh, each was the federal head of a race. Each was the head of a covenant. Each represented their descendants. And each of them passed to their descendants the effects and the fruit of their own work. But the paragraph we come to now that I want to look at this morning, verses 15, 16, and 17, develops the differences, the contrast between our being in Adam and being in Christ. You remember that in this section, Paul is writing about Christ and Adam, and at the beginning of the section, he starts to develop an important comparison. He is afraid that perhaps people will not understand what he has been talking about in the matter of imputed righteousness. So he wants to remind them that imputation occurred at the fall, that God imputed the sin of Adam to the whole human race. That's what the phrase, because all sinned, means. So he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death passed to all men because all sinned. Now at that point, Paul intends to go on with that thought, but he doesn't really get there until verse 18, where he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. But when he got to that point of saying, and in this way death came to all men because all sin, he interrupts his thought. And there is a, if you will, a, a parenthesis. Apparently he thought that the majority of his readers would be confused by the phrase because all sin. They might not know what he was talking about. And so he explains in, in verses 13 and 14 that he means that Adam's sin was imputed to all men because of Adam being the federal head of the race. He breaks off from verse 12 to explain himself. Verses 13 and 14 are that explanation. He shows that the punishment for sin, which is death, was in the world before the law was given 
through Moses. Therefore, because people died during this period, though they were not technically breakers of the law, because the law had not yet been given, yet they were still condemned. And the proof that they were condemned is they died. They died not for their own transgressions, although they had plenty of them. They were guilty. But they died because they sinned in Adam. Because Adam's sin is imputed to all of mankind as he is the federal head of the race. His point is that we are condemned by reason of our union with Adam. Just as we are to be saved by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ. It's a very important and very great similarity. And you have to maintain it to have integrity in exegeting this passage of Scripture. I was uh, looking on the Internet last week and I, I came across an article about a traditional Southern Baptist viewpoint of things. And I consider myself pretty traditional Southern Baptist, you know. I've been one, you know, for 150 years. And so I, I read their second article. And they said, Adam's sin affected Adam and no one else. I thought, really? So Adam's sin affected no one but Adam. Now, to, to keep the parallelism, you know what that has to mean already. That means Christ's obedience affected Christ and no one else. If you will not have imputed sin, you can't have imputed righteousness. That's what Paul is saying throughout this passage. I, I, I read an article about that article, and the guy pointed out that they then say that all mankind is inclined to sin. Why? If Adam's sin didn't affect anybody but Adam, why is there an inclination to sin? I don't get it. Doesn't make much sense. The whole point of the passage here is that we we sinned in Adam, we can be we can be declared righteous in Christ. And if you don't want one, you can't have the other. Because you you destroy any honest exposition of the passage. So I found out I'm not as traditional as I think. Okay? Still no skinny jeans, though. Don't get excited. Now, here, we might have expected Paul to have resumed the contrast, which he began the section with. He doesn't really do that till we get to verse 18. He doesn't do that immediately because I, when he got to the end of verse 14, he thought a further clarification would be needed. Uh, he has shown that we are united to Christ, just as we are united to Adam. But it seems that Paul did not want to give the impression that the parallels hold true on every level. He didn't want us to think that they were exactly alike. And although it is true that we are justified in Christ, just as we have been condemned in Adam, that's really only a part of the message. Actually, the differences are as great as the similarities. We are condemned in Adam. That much is true. That's beyond doubt for me. But the salvation that we have 
because of our union with Christ is far greater and more glorious than the righteousness that Adam had before the fall. Paul wants us to know that there is an abundance of grace and that our position in Christ is grand and glorious far beyond anything that Adam possessed before he sinned. So here there is a further digression. I had, a, I had an associate pastor one time who was a lot smarter than me. You don't have to be very smart, but he used to tell me that I, that I talk in parentheses. You know, that I interrupt. But Paul's kind of talking in parentheses here. And it's a really, I guess you could say this is a, a parentheses within a parentheses. Verses 13 and 14, he's talked about how we've sinned in Adam. So in verses 15, 16, and 17... He makes a further digression to explain how union with Christ is far greater in its nature and its effects than the original union that we had with Adam. Really, this passage is filled with contrast. There is the trespass versus the gift. There is death versus eternal life. There is condemnation versus justification. There is one versus many. There is sin versus righteousness. There is Adam versus Christ. And the comparisons will continue on down in verses 18 through 21. There is disobedience as opposed to obedience. Sinners as opposed to those who have been made righteous. There is law as opposed to to grace. Now, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary on Romans 5 that the greatest contrast in the passage is between the natural and the supernatural. And I, I think that's true. I, I think that that is the greatest contrast. And really, all of the other contrasts are simply a subset of that one. So re remember that the greatest contrast we're thinking about here is the natural versus the supernatural. Adam is the natural. Christ is the supernatural. Sin is the natural. Justification is the supernatural. Death is the natural. Life is the supernatural. So the, the first contrast is the gift versus the trespass. So in what way is the gift that we receive of salvation in Jesus Christ not like Adam's sin? Or in what way is the gift much more than the sin was? Uh, and again here, I was kind of helped out here by uh, Dr. Michael Byrd, his commentary on Romans. He points out that in the Mediterranean world of the first century, gift-giving was a lot different than it is now. Now we give gifts, and we give gifts to people because we want to. We don't expect anything back. Well, some people do, but you're not supposed to. You know, we, we, we give because we want to give. But in the first century world, Dr. Bird points out that gifts were given very, very carefully. And that 
it was always about did the gift fit. You didn't want to give too much. You didn't want to give too little. Because it was also about reciprocation. Anytime you gave a gift to someone, whether it was a bribe to a government official or something to your boss or anyone else, you expected something in return. And so the gift always had to fit. Well, Paul is going to shock that world and ours by saying that the gift is way beyond the trespass. It's far more, far greater, far more glorious than we could ever imagine. And I, I believe that the, the contrast is found in the, in the word died. Notice verse uh, 15. He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The sin of Adam brought death and it brought, brought death to all by contrast the gift of God brought life to the many don't, don't get sidetracked by Paul's use of the word many he is not speaking quantitatively here most of the time many to us suggest a specific number and so there have been those who have read this verse and said what he is saying is that there will be more saved than lost. I don't think that's what he's teaching at all. Others have looked at it and said, oh, he's teaching universalism. This, mean, this means that eventually everybody is saved. Or they will say, all men are saved, they just don't know it yet. Yeah, I've, I've met quite a few that obviously didn't know it. Uh, he is not teaching universalism here. Not at all. Too much else in the book of Romans that that unequivocally goes against that. I think when he uses the word many, he's thinking of the union of the race with Adam and the union of the saved with Christ. He's not thinking in terms of quantity. So when he says many, he just means many. Many. All. All sinned in Adam. That was many. And all who believe are saved in Christ. Uh, it just means many. The gift of life overflows. He means many, for many are surely saved. He's not trying to pin down a specific number. I don't think he's making uh, a, a comparison to say more will be saved than lost or all will be saved, not at all. The contrast then, if it's not between a greater number, and a smaller number, or between numbers at all, what is it? It's between death and life. It is between death that comes on all because the sin of Adam, and life which comes to every believer in Christ. I've, I've said a couple of times that death is not natural. By that I mean it wasn't designed to be natural. God did not design man to die. 
But there is a sense that the secularists are right because if left to ourselves without any supernatural intervention, death simply comes. God told Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall die. Literally, the Hebrew says, dying, you shall die. And Adam died. He, he died immediately in his spirit and progressively in his spirit as he further and further from the holiness that he had before the fall. And ultimately, he died in the body. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I'll get a word here in a minute. It did not require any special intervention of God for that to happen. Once Adam sinned, he brought death, not only to himself, but to all of his posterity. Because death, sin produces death for all equally. Why do men die now? Because of sin. Uh, I've told people before, the, the best man that I ever knew was my father. People sometimes ask me, used to, my dad's been dead nearly 25 years. They say, why did your dad die? Because he deserved to die. By that I don't mean he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a great man. I didn't love him. But he was a sinner. And he died because he deserved to die. He lives because he was in Christ. But death comes to all. Death comes to the moral and the immoral. Death comes to all races, all tribes, all tongues, whatever. Because Adam sinned, death passed to the human race in a natural, inevitable way. And so to that extent, secular people are right when they say that death is a normal biological sequence. Organisms are born, they grow, they mature, they grow old, they eventually die. And we know that. We, we say there's only two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. Because we know that death follows life. But then he says the free gift is not like the trespass. Over against this natural outworking of sin in Adam, resulting in the death of all, comes the supernatural working of the gracious God. Left to ourselves, our cause, our case, is hopeless. Nothing is more characteristic of the presence of man on earth than cemeteries. But God has not left us to ourselves. He has intervened to save us apart from anything that we could do or have ever done. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul will say it the same way later on in the book of Romans. He'll say the wages of sin is death. That's natural. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the supernatural. So think of what follows from this, from this contrast between the gift and the trespass, between the natural and the supernatural. First of all, all glory goes to God, not man. 
if you are studying any doctrine or system of salvation that all the glory doesn't go to God, get out of it. Get out of it. If someone tells you that men are saved by their own free will, that they just decide when they want to get saved and then God saves them, just get out. If you're somewhere and somebody says that, just saturate that place with your absence. Because if all glory doesn't go to God, it is wrong. Secondly, salvation is certain. Because the work of God is a lasting thing. Unlike our own feeble, weak achievements. It is because this is the work of God and not man that nothing in creation, Paul will say later, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is the work of God. Nothing, nothing in this world, in the world to come, can take me out of the hand of Jesus Christ. Why? Because I'm such a good person? No. I'm vile and wretched. That was a place for a chorus of amens. There you go. Not so quick. But because my salvation is a work of God. God did it. I didn't do it. God did it. I was lost and undone without God or His Son when He reached down His hand for me. I didn't find God. God found me. God wasn't lost. I was. I did not accept Jesus he graciously accepted me. All of salvation is of God. God gets the glory. Salvation is certain. Alright? Second contrast. One trespass versus many trespasses. Here the focus is on the results that follow from the actions of Adam and Jesus Christ. Uh, Maybe the contrast is a little difficult to see in verse 15, but not in verse 16. There's a clear contrast between the one trespass that brought condemnation, that is the sin of Adam and eating of the forbidden tree, and the many trespasses which Adam and all who followed him have committed that are atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let, let me pose for you a hypothetical scenario. One that is impossible. But for the sake of argument, bear with me. The one sin, suppose that the one sin that Adam committed in eating of the fruit of the tree that he wasn't supposed to was the only sin that he ever committed. Suppose Adam lived the rest of his life and never sinned again. And suppose that all who came from Adam, which would be everybody, down through the long ages of history, including Eve and Cain and Abel and Seth and all of the rest that followed him, suppose that none of us ever committed a sin in thought or deed. It would still have been necessary for Jesus Christ to die to save us. 
because we are condemned in Adam. Because what Paul is teaching here is that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And it requires the blood of Jesus Christ. It requires his satisfaction of God's holiness to propitiate God's wrath. We would still need a Savior to rescue us from that original sin and the condemnation that it brought. And even if that had been the situation, and Jesus had come to save us from the effects of only that one sin, salvation would still be glorious. One sin, you're still lost. You're still lost. You know, if, if Christ had died, if that had been the case, that scenario were true, and Christ came and died for that one sin, then the angels and all the redeemed of all the ages would still say and sing of Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you have purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It would still be all glory to God. But of course that wasn't the situation. Adam's one sin did bring condemnation to all from which Christ alone can redeem us. But Adam sinned many, many times after he fell. Countless times. And so did his descendants. So much so that God could say before the flood, every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil all the time. And Adam's many sins were followed by countless billions of sins, by countless billions of people. Sometimes, sometimes I, I get morbid and start thinking, I wonder how many sins I've committed. It depresses me. Because I don't know. I couldn't count them. God knows. But he doesn't hold them against me. I saw a little sign the other day I thought was wonderful. It said, when God saved you, he factored in your own stupidity. Yes! I'm so glad. God saves us from all our sins. All of my sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. From God's point of view, remember the essence of human history is how Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 32. I mean, men are all condemned. They're all sinful. And Paul marvels when he says, The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification if for no other reason salvation is a marvelous glorious thing because it's a, a whole lot harder to clean up a mess than it is to make one I mean Adam made a terrible mess for all of mankind and Christ cleaned it up and the cleaning up is a whole lot more difficult required a whole lot more than making it did 
So then the third contrast here, the reign of death versus the reign of life. The key to understanding this verse, I think, is to emphasize the word abundance. He says, for because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive, watch it, the abundance of grace. Now he could have just said those who receive grace. But he said the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, they will reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Think about it for a moment. Which would be better? To be born innocent, righteous, as Adam was before the fall? Or to be a blood-washed blood child of God through faith in Jesus Christ? The answer is, our salvation is infinitely greater. We have an abundance of grace. We have much, much more. God did not merely restore us to the position that Adam had before the fall, but rather carries us way beyond that. Those redeemed by the death of Christ don't merely recover from the fall. They are made to reign through Jesus Christ which they had no title to in Adam's communion. It is not only that we are forgiven, but over and above being forgiven, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to us. Unfallen Adam was righteous, but his righteousness was the righteousness of a created being. It was the righteousness of a man. Adam never had the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon him before the fall. What he lost was his own righteousness. But you and I in salvation are not merely given back a human righteousness, the righteousness of Adam before he fell. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ much more. Abundance, superabundance. We receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. If Adam had remained in a state of righteousness, then he could have sung, In my own righteousness I stand, soon to join God's glorious band. Adam can't sing that because he didn't stand. He fell. He fell because he was not able, by his own strength, to confirm himself in righteousness. Similarly, were we to attempt to stand in our own righteousness, assuming we could ever attain to it in the first place, we would fall also. But we do not fall. Rich pointed out a couple of weeks ago in the message of Jude, now to him who is able to do what? Keep you from falling. You're not going to fall. If you're in Christ, you are in Christ. You cannot fall. Oh, you say, well, that's arrogance. No, that's Bible. It's not because of anything we do. It's because of what Jesus has done. We do not stand in our own righteousness. 
We stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's not only that we will stand in the final day of judgment, although, praise God, that's true. We stand now. For he says we shall reign in life. We reign in life. That means we can mortify sin. We can put sin to death. We can be progressively growing more like Jesus Christ every day. We reign in life. He means that by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the communion and empowering of the Holy Spirit, we can have victory now over sin. So in that way, the gift of God in Jesus Christ far surpasses the effects of Adam's sin and all other transgressions. Notice the phrase that Paul keeps repeating in these verses. Through the one man. That is through Jesus Christ. It occurs in verse 17. We've already encountered a similar phrase in verse 15. By the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. Again in verses 19 and 21. Through the obedience of the one man. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The apostle never leaves this idea. Because it is the one glorious, absolutely essential truth in the passage. Once we were in Adam, and we fell in him, and his sin brought death to the human race. Good news. You can escape the effect of Adam's fall. How? By putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And God will declare you righteous. God will impute to you all the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which can never, ever, ever be lost. We can stand in a divine righteousness, which is perfect, and can never be taken from us. I can't think of anything more terrifying than to die and to go stand in front of a thrice holy God. A God who is so holy that man cannot bear to look upon him. Were it not for the imputed righteousness of Christ, that thought would be terrifying beyond words. But because we are in Christ, because his righteousness has been imputed to us, we sing when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne then what follows on Christ the solid rock I stand all other ground is sinking sand are you standing on Christ are you on the solid rock all of humanity this morning is either in Adam or in Christ. Jesus Christ became a man, lived a perfect life, went to a cross and died for sinners, rose from the dead the third day, has ascended back to heaven. If you put your faith in his person and work, you can be in Christ. Trust him for the forgiveness of sin.
trust him for salvation. God will declare you righteous in him. We are corrupt in Adam. A vile, wicked, sinful race. It is only in Christ that we can be declared righteous. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for this word.